All right, great. Let's go ahead and uh, get started here. So, um, old school, welcome to this. This is a whiteboard. And say, Lucas, what are you doing with a whiteboard? Well, just didn't have time to put cool slides together. There's no excuse. One of our uh, residents, you know, this is a fantastic thing about being a training center for future leaders. Future leaders get to watch how you lead. And so one of our residents comes up, do you have a handout today that I could pass out for people? Just trying to be really helpful. So no, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. <laughs> Don't learn from that. All right. Um, here's what we're going to do uh, this morning and in the, in the weeks coming up is I'd like to uh, extend a bit of a discussion time that will help us both digest the material that we're walking through in First Timothy and maybe progress in some spaces that we can't cover in the exposition time. Um, I, so let me just talk about some of the themes that are significant. We're, we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, women in ministry. It's a very important subject. It is important that in our church, women both understand, believe, and feel that they are necessary, important, and useful parts of the body. This is very important. It also is very significant that they understand, okay, if scripture says there are two things I can't do, namely teach and exercise authority like an elder, then what is it that I can do? And I think some of those are really helpful things for us to explore. Additionally, some of the texts that intersect with like passages like 1 Timothy 2, okay? So one of the themes that I'd like for us to be able to talk about a little bit more is uh, women and ministry. Another one uh, that I want us to talk about is going to be widows and care for the oppressed among God's people throughout time. 1 Timothy chapter 5 has the longest section on widows that we read about in the New Testament. And we're going to get there, but it's going to teach us about an actual list, like a widow's list, qualifications for those who could be on that list or couldn't, what their lives had to be like, and then their connection to their family and the church. And yet what's fascinating is there's almost no evidence of that in the church today. And so I think it's worth us talking about. Why is that? Is that right or is that wrong? Are we dropping the ball or have other people picked up the ball? Or what's happening? So I think we're gonna, we're gonna spend a week talking about that. We're gonna talk about the intersection of money and ministry. And um, the, the one on widows, um, uh, we're gonna have Joe Skinner is going to teach that. And then the one on uh, money and ministry, Josh Langford's gonna teach that. And it's because in 1 Timothy, there's a large section at the end of the book that talks about the danger of loving money and its infectious nature both in your soul and in the church. But there are good uses for money and how it intersects with ministry. And we wanna, we wanna tease that out a little bit. And so we're gonna talk about that. Uh, also just wanted to talk about <laughs> like good elders. Like open up some discussion to talk about eldership. And specifically because in chapter three of 1 Timothy, I'm gonna be walking through uh, the instructions about qualifications for elders. 
But I want us to think more clearly as a church, what does that mean for gospel grace? What does it mean that here in our context, we should be raising up elders? What about those who aspire to eldership? What would be the pathway for them to serve the church in that way? And I just want to walk down that path a little bit. So eldership. And then the last one is, uh, as if there aren't enough big topics, um, deacons and deaconesses. And I want to talk about the passage in 1 Timothy 3 and the discussion that goes on there, where some churches have deaconesses, some don't. Why? And how does that play out um, in 1 Timothy? And also in a reference to Phoebe in the book of Romans and and so I want to talk about that. So those are kind of the big themes that we're going to try to talk through. And, um, and I was torn about how to, how to do this class. One way is I could have like preaching part two. And I could take all of these footnotes, you know, like 40-something footnotes. And I could, you know, this is all the great information that I can't share when I preached. And now I'm going to preach it part two. Some of you are like, oh. (laughs) That's what I thought too. I'm like, ah, those are probably just for my benefit. You know, nobody else will read the 10-point font at the bottom of my page. That's okay. Uh, that That was one. Another one was just to create an entire lecture that expanded on this. And then the third one was to do kind of a mishmash. And that's what I'm gonna try this morning. I I can lecture, believe me. For I've got, I mean, I've got three places, I have three different ways that I can go uh, and just be a talking head. But I'm tired. I'm just going to be honest. I, I need you to talk a little bit. So um, at least give, give some feedback or some questions and help the direction. So what I did is I started with some words up here. And I thought maybe this would get our minds turning a little bit. But I want to open it up and see if there are some pressing questions. And this is what I'm going to do. I am going to try to discern whether this is good for our whole group or if it's an offline question and it would be better for you and me to talk about it. So don't feel like, oh, I whiffed. He doesn't want to address that one in the big group. Some of the questions, maybe they're just better if you and I talk about them, and that's okay. Or maybe we talk about them later, okay? But I would love to hear from you. What are some of the pressing questions on your mind, either for those who were in first service and you heard First Timothy 2, or for those of you who are anticipating getting there and you've already read ahead? So what are some of those questions? They may connect with some of these words up here. It might be something completely different. And today what I'd like to talk about is particularly women and their intersection of their role in the church, okay? So that's kind of our keeping in that lane. <laughs> I mean, don't ask me about the Nephilim in Genesis 6. I'll be like, well, wait, that's a different class. <laughs> that one's in the cafe, you know? <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's stay in this lane about um, women and their intersection in ministry or in church life. Who has a, a thought or a question or wants to just grab one of those words up there and say, Tell me about it. Yes, Laura? Um, when you were quoting the verse about not teaching, you didn't, in the, in the King James, somebody said about not teaching the men. And you, you didn't say that. I just wondered what. Okay, so yeah, let's just clarify that. I want to make sure I'm super clear because maybe I wasn't when I was speaking. If, if you look in the text, this is. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so when I was preaching, sometimes I was saying in the gathered church. 
And as I said that, I was um, meaning a mixed assembly of men and women. Uh, that, was, that was my intent with saying that. But the text is clear there um, to not exercise authority over a man. So it's not teaching or exercising authority over a man in the context, this is super important, in the context of the gathered church. The reason this is important is because some of you, you know, you don't want to go to work tomorrow, you know, uh, at your company and your supervisor who's a, a female has a briefing for all of you and say, stop, you shall not teach or exercise authority over a man. And you stand up and walk out. You might as well just keep walking. Yeah. All right. It's game over. First uh, Timothy 2 is about the gathered church. Uh, that's what it's about. And it's uh, denoting a mixed assembly of men and women. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there, there is something with the King James. Do you have the King James uh, translation? It's okay. I think it's, it says, instead of exercise authority, it says usurp authority. It uses the idea of usurp in the Old English. And it gives this connotation that uh, some scholars have tried to find a loophole. And so they've made the word exercise authority mean exercise authority in a bad way, a domineering way, a usurping way. So see, if women don't do that, then it's okay to exercise authority. See, some have tried to do that. Uh, but there are vast studies on the use of this Greek word, and that's not what it means. It simply means, flatline, exercise authority. That's what it means. It doesn't mean exercise authority in a bad way. He's not prohibiting exercising authority in a bad way. He's just prohibiting exercising authority. That's what he's doing. And there's, uh, I think, I want to show you some books. And then we'll get the next person. These might be helpful for you. Um, you laugh. This is like one-tenth of my stack on this subject. Um, this one right here. This one right here is um, 850 something pages. And this one is trying to, this is by Wayne Grudem. If you've seen a systematic theology, it's like a thousand something pages. But this one is specifically on evangelical feminism and it's entitled Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. And he tries to, tries to wade through um, the texts of scripture that inform uh, this discussion. Uh, another one that's um, rather interesting is this one by Andres Kostenberger and uh, Tom Schreiner. It's called Women in the Church. It's the third edition. And in this one, they actually walk through every use of that word authority that's used in the New Testament and do an analysis of it. It's a super, this whole book, this whole book is uh, 410 pages and it's the subtitle is An Interpretation and Application of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. The whole book is on 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. 400 pages. Um, huge. Um, okay, anyways, what, what's another question? Yeah. Um, you said that, it raised a question for me. Can you talk a little more about your definition of the gathered church, right? Like, so there's Sunday morning, there's small groups, there's whatever other teaching things. Like, how do you see that? Yeah. So this is where, <laughs> this is where it gets difficult. It gets difficult in two ways. So let me see if I can um, 
um, let me see if I can picture it this way. So I'm using the gathered church. And the reason I'm doing that is because of chapter 3, verse 15, that you might know how to behave yourself in the household of God, the church of the living God. So the, the point of 1 Timothy is about the church, right? That's what he's talking about, and he makes that clear, okay? And in the context even of chapter 2, remember chapter divisions, those are imposed upon the text, they weren't there in the original writing. So we like have this hard break, come back in two weeks and hear chapter three. Like, no, it wasn't like that. They just read it. So you realize that what he's talking about and roles here have to do with the church because the very follow-on is about elders in the church. And then he says, and this is about the church, 315, right? And how to behave. So it's about the church, so the gathered church. Now you brought up a great question and I want to extend it in, I want to, Talk about your, your question and then another one that's related. And so your question is, what about uh, situations where it's not the gathered church? And that is, it might be some Christians. Even Christians from the same church. But not the whole church. <laughs> Okay, I got it. Okay, so that's one side. And then here's the other one. What about parachurch? So this one over here would, would be like, like what you're saying, small groups, let's say, or a gospel growth, let's say, with a, with, with a, mixed, uh, a mixed group. Over here, parachurch, this could be like a campus ministry or a seminary. I mean, so is it okay for a woman to teach in a seminary, to teach men in a seminary? Is that okay? Or in a campus ministry for a woman to lead a Bible study up at the U? Or here in a church for a gospel growth or a mid-sized group or for a um, community group? Now, this is where it gets difficult. And the answer is nuanced. Because neither of these represent this, then the answer has to be nuanced. And here's how the nuance would go. And I think it's wisdom and discernment that apply here. The more that whatever happens in this group or this group, the more that that activity looks like what is delegated to this group, the more it looks like that, the more likely you should follow the restrictions and prescriptions that apply to the church. So the more it looks like that, the more you should lean into these. And then the less it looks like that, probably the more freedom you would have. And that's my understanding of how this works. Because, and let me explain why. Because we do have examples, and I brought these up in the message this morning. If you're coming to second service, you'll hear it in just a minute. Because there are examples in which Women are prohibited from teaching or exercising authority here, but we have examples of women teaching men like Apollos, right? You have Priscilla doing that. Or you have examples of, of Timothy's grandmother and mother teaching him. Or you have instructions 
in Titus chapter 2 of older women teaching younger women. So we realize that as we move away from the gathered church, even into gatherings of Christians, older women, then we're not going to follow those um, prohibitions here. There's some flexibility. Women can teach. Uh, older women can teach younger women. Women can teach children. Women can disciple. They can evangelize. And so uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but I would see it more like a gradient. And that is um, the closer it looks like, appears to be, or per- is perceived by people as a function of the gathered church, the more we should attempt to follow these prohibit prohibitions and prescriptions. The less it's like that, the less it applies. Now, I didn't give you the exact answer because I don't know that there really is one. Some of it has to do with just wisdom and discernment and sometimes just decisions, not right or wrong. Do you want to push me on that a little bit more? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, I think that's, yeah. So I think there are pro- there's probably some leeway in there, and that's why there are faithful churches that do it a little bit different on some of these spots. They do it a little bit different. Faithful churches, they want to obey the Lord, and I think it's really discernment and wisdom how they're navigating that. That's a great question, though. Thank you. Yeah, Zach? Can, can a church preach the gospel faithfully and not be in sin if they have female pastors? <laughs> well, let's just mention church names now, and then let's just... No. <laughs> Okay, here, this is how I'll answer this question. What's at stake has to do with hermeneutics. In other words, biblical interpretation is at stake. So having women elders is an application of a particular hermeneutical approach to scripture, at least in some of these key texts, like 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy 2. So again, it's a fruit. So if you look on their webpage and they have uh, female elders, that's a fruit of an interpretive lens that they use to understand scripture. And I would suggest to you that that's a faulty lens. And the danger is, where does the application of that lens end? Where does it end? And I know you're like, oh, you're using the slippery slope argument. Yeah, but these are actually major issues in church life. Because if it applies to passages like 1 Timothy 2, and let me just play this out. If we relativize 1 Timothy 2 to an Ephesian context that only applies at that time and is no longer culturally relevant today, then use that same lens on 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and tell me where you end up. You're no longer just ordaining women. You're also ordaining, and you could pick from that list. Do you see? Because you've relativized these passages to a past particular context that no longer has relevance today. And I just have a question, where does that end? And then my second question is, then who's in authority when it comes to the word? 
If you can always like pull out the trump card that says, well, that was particularized for that context. I mean, can't you do that with anything in the Bible? If you don't really like it, just say, well, you know, that was Moses, you know. Well, that was Paul, you know. Well, that was Jesus. Well, that, I mean, where does it stop? So I don't think it's as much dealing with, in answering your question, I don't think it's as much like address the fruit. I think we have to back it up and say, well, let's talk about the root. And that's a hermeneutical issue. Would it be helpful for you if I just briefly talked about the hermeneutics for a second? Would it be helpful? Okay, I got one thumbs up, so I think it's going to be helpful. (laughs) Okay, then let's do it. Let's do it. Um, This is one of my three, you know, lectures that I was going to do. Okay, Um, here. Look at this magic. See, you think it's old school, but it's magic. (laughs) Boom. Boom. Okay. Let's talk about two hermeneutical principles. Okay? There's the principle of harmony. And there's the principle of history. Principle of harmony basically says this. The Bible was written by one capital A author though it was written by many lowercase a authors. Are you tracking? Okay. Since it was written by one capital A author, namely God, then we should expect a sense of harmony. God doesn't contradict himself. We can expect that the Bible has an underlying consistency. It's inspired by the same one true God. And what that means is we don't, we don't manipulate texts artificially. Instead, our natural inclination when we approach the Bible should be to see harmony. If you approach the Bible trying to pit Paul against Jesus, you're not understanding this hermeneutical principle. If you go through your Bible and you prioritize the red letters... You're not understanding this principle. The red letter Bible was wonderful and terrible. When they decided to put Jesus' words in red letters, it was helpful in the sense that you could see the quotations easily on a page. It was unhelpful in the sense that some people then exalted a canon within a canon. They've got Jesus and he's opposed to Paul. They're not in opposition. The scriptures were written by one capital A A author, and we should see harmony. Here's the second one. It's the principle of history. And that is that every text of scripture was written in a particular historical and contextual setting. No word of God was spoken in a vacuum. In other words, God didn't publish culture-free maxims. There weren't these like cloud writings in the sky that had nothing to do with the people that lived at that time. His revelation was given to particular people at particular times. Special revelation or particular revelation. The text then, because God's revelation was given in in history, then the text is an amalgamation of substance and form. In other words... The substance is the eternal truth that transcends culture. In God's revelation, there's eternal truth that transcends culture. 
And then in the form, you have this transient cultural presentation. So I just want to give you an example. Um, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, one of the proverbial sayings is that you're not supposed to move the ancient landmarks. Don't move them. Don't move the ancient landmarks. Some of you, you're like, well, let's preach it, Lucas. It's don't move the ancient landmarks. And some of you are like, I'm taking that one to heart. And as you leave here, you're wondering to yourself, what are the ancient landmarks? Well, ancient landmarks were stones that were used to mark where your land was. So they, they didn't have surveyors with GPS. They used these stones to mark your plot of land. And the text is saying, don't go out at night when nobody's looking and pick up the stones and move them in your favor. Don't move the ancient landmarks. Well, even though the form has changed, none of us have marked our land by little piles of stone in the corners. Even though the form has changed, there's a substance to it that's timeless. Don't cheat your neighbor. Stop stealing from your neighbor. Don't do it. There's like something of substance in that that is timeless. Now, the difficulty here is you would say that the form is time-bound. The substance is time-less. And then when we teach, we have to somehow get to here in a way that's timely. So, okay, let's see, don't move the ancient landmarks. The stones at the corners of people's property is time-bound. The timeless principle would be something like don't steal from your neighbor. The timely, well, what would be some applications in which people secretly steal from their neighbors? They would take something that didn't belong to them or maybe from a coworker or maybe from their company. And we're thinking about what are timely applications that uphold this substance and are analogous to this form. Is everybody tracking here? So these are the hermeneutical principles. Now, how does this apply to women in ministry? So let's get to our, our text. Well, there's a few ways that people then will approach all of this, specifically in the area of history. Some will enthrone the form. This is the thing they love right here. They love uh, the form. And so they invest it with normative authority. It's a rigid literalism. It would be the sort of literalism that approaches our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and all the men have to do what every time they pray? What do they have to do? Thank you, Jeremiah. Yes, they have to put their hands in the air. It is a rigid literalism that connects this form as a universal prescription. You must always lift your hands when you pray. Or if it was 1 Corinthians 11, you must always wear what, ladies? A head covering. Or if we were to go through our text in 1 Timothy 2, ladies, it means absolutely no what? No gold or pearls. And if you have wavy hair this morning, oh boy. You know. So all of a sudden, they enthrone the form. That's one way that that's done. Here's another way. Some of them will take both of these, both 
the substance and the form, and they will dismiss. They dismiss both of them. Both the substance and the form. In other words, the eternal truth and the cultural expression, they call it dated or irrelevant. They say things like, times have changed. We're no, under, no longer under any of these obligations to accept Paul's teaching on women. Those texts were temporary regulations in a given situation that is no longer applicable to us. Now, the danger with this approach, declaring a passage of scripture to have no local or universal, but only temporary and not perpetual validity, the danger with that is it opens the door for a wholesale rejection of scripture. Remember, again, this puts you in the driver's seat. You can look at basically anything in scripture and say it's antiquated, that isn't for us today, that's from a long time ago, and then do whatever you want. Okay, here's the last way, and this is the way that it probably should work out. So instead of enthroning the form or dismissing both, I'm gonna have to lay on the floor to do this last one here. (laughs) We need to transpose the cultural expression. into a contemporary application. So we need to retain the timeless truth and then transpose this time-bound piece into something that's timely. So the difficulty here, and let's just be honest, the difficulty here is discerning what is permanent and universal and what is cultural that needs to be transposed into a contemporary expression, right? That's the difficulty here. So when you get to 1 Timothy 2, like, okay, well then tell me, what's the magic formula for getting at what's permanent and universal and what's cultural and needs to be transposed? Okay, I just wanna close by just seeing if I can walk us through a possibility in 1 Timothy 2. Men everywhere, this is verse eight, men everywhere are to pray in holiness and love, but the bodily posture may differ according to culture. So let me just say that again. Men everywhere are to pray in holiness and love. Remember, they're supposed to lift what kind of hands? Holy hands, he's pointing at. There needs to be holiness there. And it needs to be without anger or quarreling. So there should be love there. But the body posture of whether you raise your hands, or I went through a number of other texts, remember? Whether you bow down or kneel down or look down or look up, those may change according to culture. So we transpose, okay, those parts. Likewise, women should adorn themselves with modesty, decency, and good deeds. That would be what I'd suggest is the substance. Women adorn themselves with modesty, decency, and good deeds. But the form, which would be what? Clothing, hairstyle, and jewelry may vary according to culture. I mean, quite frankly, there's a variety of ways you could come in here, both men and women, and be immodest because you're drawing attention to yourself. 
mean, if I came, there's, okay, I'll give you two examples real quick. One is, uh, next week, I am going to be shorn like a sheep. (laughs) And it's because after the sermon next week, I fly to the Air Force Academy and I serve my duty days. However, I don't want to be a distraction. So the last time I did this, there were a number of guys who wanted me to have the goose mustache, okay? The beast mustache, the Paul Tripp mustache, you know, the caterpillar under your nose mustache. They, they wanted me to keep this thing, but I thought to myself, I don't know if I should do that for a Sunday service. Not because there's anything wrong with mustaches and many of you have them here, but I just thought if I showed up on a Sunday with that thing, it would just be like, you know, really? Like that's, that's what I think it would be. And I just thought, I don't think I should be immodest in that way. Okay, amen. (laughs) So basically there would be a variety of ways, there would be a variety of ways in which the form would change while retaining the substance. Now let's get to the last one. Finally, women should learn and not teach or exercise authority. That's what I think is the substance. They should not teach or exercise authority over the man in the gathered church. But the way that they would demonstrate their submissiveness and quietude could take different forms in different cultures. So how is it that women would demonstrate submissiveness or quietude that would be different in different cultures? Well, I think like in Corinth, it was about what? Head coverings. It's not mentioned in, in, in if, uh, 1 Timothy to the church of Ephesus. Um, and so there are ways. In a, in a synagogue culture, quietude would have meant complete silence. And that is because all of those women and all of those men were trained that when you go to synagogue, women don't talk at all. So you see, the form may look different to communicate quietude and submissiveness, while the substance that is not exercising authority or teaching a man in the gathered assembly of the church remains the same. So I'm not saying this is easy. I'm just saying this is the hermeneutical uh, work that you try to do in these texts. And what you'll understand is that those that seem to be going the wrong way are actually doing one of these. And liberal scholarship is doing this. Okay. All right. So that kind of answers that question. All right. I'll just take a question, but I might not answer it because we're actually out of time, but maybe it will log in my brain for later. Yes. So knowing that good harmonies by church can produce spiritual health, how should we engage with ones who may be going to a church with a female pastor? Yep, uh, I don't think I can answer it short. So let's talk afterwards or save it for next week, okay? That's a great question. So let's just save that one, okay? D- can you not forget it? Like, I'm, I'm not trying to disregard you in any way. We're just already like seven minutes past and I have to preach again in seven minutes, so, or whatever, we start. Okay, so just please write down that question, maybe even text it to me. Uh, yes, Len? Make a quick comment in chapter two, verse 12, about women being quiet. Uh, (laughs) Yes, so it is the, yep, I will, I'll do it, yeah, sorry, I'll do it in the next service, okay, all right, see ya, you're dismissed, I went over, bye. (laughs)